Hey, fellow community, we are deep into July. If you like soccer or football, as the whole world calls it but us, yeah, Women's World Cup is happening right now, and I'm getting ready to watch the USA play England. Go USA, they're killing it. I love it. Love watching it. It's been so much fun. Anyway, that has nothing to do with the Philo podcast, but uh, hey, July, it's about July. And because it's July, that's the summertime, so a lot of us, our kids are out of school, and so it's just really important that we all take time to hang out with our families. When the days are longer, let's have some fun. Stop working. Okay, I should take my own advice. What am I talking about? Anyway, you know what I'm trying to say. If this is your first time listening to the Philo podcast, our goal is to help technical artists in the local church become more effective so that our churches can become more effective. Basically, Philo Conference, every third week, it's coming at you. Anyway, speaking of Philo Conference, we just recently decided we're going to launch a Philo 2019 Anaheim. Awesome, right? If you live on the West Coast, you might want to consider coming to our new Philo location. It will be the same vibe as the Philos we've been doing in Chicago for the last few years. And just recently, if you're listening to this in real time, we just opened up a super reduced ticket price of $99 from now until midnight Pacific Standard Time on July 12th. Our Philo team, we've been meeting with a small group of TDs from Southern California to kind of dream about the possibilities of what a Philo could look like out West. And we really, man, so excited to partner with them and with Kevin Ward, who's the TD over at Cross Point Church in Anaheim, which is where we'll be hosting Philo 2019 Anaheim. I'm going to say Anaheim just over and over again. So mark it on your calendar, November 5th and 6th, Cross Point Church, Anaheim. That's right, Anaheim again. All the resources from Philo 2019 Chicago are now available on our website, philo.org. And there's a little tab over there, shop. You can just click on resources. There's also a tab that says 2019 merch, some sweet swag there if you want to buy a t-shirt or a hoodie or something. I mean, we sold out of hoodies like crazy. So maybe you can grab one there, have it shipped to yourself or to someone you love, perhaps. It's not why I'm bringing that up for the swag, but we have all the audio of the majority of our breakout classes, as well as videos of the main session messages. And you can order everything together, or just the breakouts, or just the main sessions, or each class individually. They're all there on that page. If you order it all together, you get about half off savings, so the total price. These are super great tools for you to use for your own development, or even to help your team grow together. Uh, anyway, okay, enough of that. Let's get to this version of the podcast. My guest for episode number 29 is Jeff Sandstrom. He's been a front of house engineer for many artists we've heard of, and most recently, he is one of the co-founders of MXU, uh, which I'm guessing many of our listeners know about. Anyway, if you don't, go to mxu.rocks. You'll find out all about what's going on there. But great guys. Jeff is one of those great guys. And you know what? Jeff was a huge help to me personally as we launched Philo back in 2015. I knew that he was coming into town with Chris Tomlin. And so I said, hey, can I have you fly up a day early and we'll meet just to kind of talk about what I'm thinking about Philo. It was a great time. We got to dream about some of the things he was uh, thinking about and now doing. Um, so it's fun to kind of look back. You'll hear all about it in our conversation. So I'm going to stop talking about all the things we talked about and just let you hear our conversation anyway. Okay, let's jump in. Hey, Jeff. Hi, how are you, Todd? Yeah, I'm doing pretty good. Good. Thanks for having me. Yeah, thanks for joining in. 
so one of the things that we tend to do on this podcast, I tend to think about the first time I met somebody and we have a little conversation about that. Okay. Uh, and I don't know that I could pinpoint like the date and the time that we met, but I got to believe it was during a tour of Chris Tomlin coming through Willow Creek. It probably was. Yeah. I think the first time we were there, it was 2013 maybe. Okay. And so, um, gosh, I forget. I, I was there. Yeah. I bet you were. <laughs> yeah. Um, I forget exactly which tour it was. Um, the one before Love Ran Red, whichever that was. Okay. Maybe, and If Our God Is For Us or whatever was after that. Anyway, it all runs together. Yeah. But yeah, we, I think if memory serves, we were either the first or one of the first like outside concerts that you guys ever hosted. Yeah, that and sounds right. We just remember being so grateful to Willow for letting us do that because other times we'd been in Chicago, you know, it's just a... The labor... <laughs> The labor in Chicago and the venues and all the stuff that you get with some of the, you know, the union stuff in Chicago is interesting. So yep. to have a place that had- It can get expensive. Had, yeah, it's very expensive. Our labor yeah. bills in Chicago were double what they would be in other cities. So yeah. just to have a place with built-in parking and a great stage and super staff and all that was just awesome. So we, we always, always loved being at Willow. I had been there years ago with- um, some of the team from Rethink, which is sort of the some of the kids ministry folks that started the kids ministry world at North Point. Okay, um, right. For a Promised Land conference years ago. And so <laughs> and I'd been in and out of Willow for various things like that, but to be there for a show and to kind of, I don't know, be a part of the production team and all the staff that you guys had at the time and some of which are still there was just great. So yeah. I have a special place in my heart for Willow. Oh, that's good to hear because I was, maybe I was talking to somebody the other day, years, this goes back many years, like 2006 or seven or even five, 2005, let's say that. That's uh, a long time do, ago, Todd. Yeah, <laughs> the fact I can still remember this. Uh, <laughs> the uh, So we used to do this thing called the Willow Creek Arts Conference and part of that was everybody's together for part of it. And then all the disciplines would kind of break up and do their own thing. And so the production area had its own main session. And okay. it was maybe about a thousand tech people at it. Felt very much like Philo does today. But Chris Tomlin actually led worship for really? that group. Yeah. And I just, I had totally forgotten about that. And, um, I would have to say that those back in those days, Chris was at Willow Creek a lot. And we were not always the easiest group to work with um, <laughs> back in those days. And so uh, to hear that uh, you you had a great experience, uh, it's like a nice turnaround. Yeah, well, that it's <laughs> funny because those years were just before my time. So I, yeah. I had started kind of getting to know Chris and getting to know more about the Passion Conference's movement and their events in around 05 and 06. I was um, I was a part of North Point Community Church in Atlanta since the beginning. Um, my wife calls herself a First Baptist refugee. So when, <laughs> when Andy Stanley left First Baptist Atlanta to right. kind of go and launch North Point, she was one of the people who went um, kind of with him. Oh, wow. Um, and before the building was built, before ground was broken, they were meeting in a hotel ballroom and it was just way back in the early days. And so she and I met, this th this would have been like, you know, mid nineties. She and I met and were married in 
98, met in 97, uh, married in 98. And that was right when North Point was just getting started. And so right, right. those early kids ministry innovations and environments and all that, that was kind of what I was part of from a production okay. standpoint, because I was a studio guy at the time okay, and was working in uh, a studio in Atlanta that happened to be the same place where all of the music for that kids ministry stuff at North Point was being recorded. So okay. I got to know Reggie Joyner uh, at that time. He was the director of family ministries uh, from North Point's beginnings. And uh, so he would bring me in to mix audio for some of their special events because he was over everything at North Point from preschool through married adults that wasn't a Sunday morning experience. Got it. Okay. And so, um, you know, married adult events and kids ministry conferences and other other events on campus, they would bring me in because I was connected to him through the kids stuff and other children's ministry uh, environments. And so that's kind of how I got my start mixing live was taking what I knew from the studio world and applying it to these events that I was involved with through North Point. A few years later, 05 was the first year that I served on the production team for Passion Conferences, and that was in Nashville, 05 and 06. And then 2007, that was the first year that Passion did a second venue. So okay, right. the, the main conference was in Phillips Arena in Atlanta, and then they had a, a B room that was in the World Congress Center, which is the convention center that's attached to that whole complex. Right, um, right. And they, they had overflow in there. Well, the overflow was 7,000 seats. <laughs> so it was, <laughs> it was bigger than anything that I, I had done before, but it was technically the B room. So they asked me to mix for that. So coming out of Passion 07, that was in January. And then early in the spring, Louis Giglio hosted an event at North Point for college leaders called Thirsty every year. And so they okay. asked me to come and be available for that. And so I mixed, I was mixing for that. And that was uh, Chris Tomlin, David Crowder, Matt Redman, and Charlie Hall at the time. Oh, wow. And, Charlie uh, Hall. Yeah. Ooh. So it was actually <laughs> during a Charlie Hall set. They were, they were leading the session. Chris and his band guys were sitting right behind me at front of house. And Chris came up to me after the session and he said, I've never heard Charlie sound that good. <laughs> We just lost our sound guy. Will you come work for me? <laughs> right, right, okay. <laughs> and so, because um, his his guy that was mixing front of house at the time, his name is Mark Thomas. He had just been hired to be the monitor engineer at the Grand Ole Opry. Okay. A job that he still has. Um, oh, wow. And uh, Chris said, hey, we need somebody to take Mark's place. And I said, no, I'm... I'm good. My daughter Stella was nine months old at the time, and sure, yeah, I was fine in the studio. And it was, you know, thanks but no thanks. And he said, "Well, why don't you come and fill in for a few dates that we already have booked until we find somebody?" So I said, "Okay, I'll agree to do that." And so nine and a half years later, we finally found my replacement. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, I had nice. the I had the privilege of touring with Chris from that spring of 07 all the way through the end of 2016. And okay. over the course of that time, I think, I think the total was like 740-some concerts. Oh, wow. 30 countries between him and Passion. And uh, I, got to, I got to learn and see you know, the world, really, and, and got to learn a ton about mixing, but also learned a lot about kind of church production world and got to see a lot of 
a lot of things that are done really well and a lot of things that are really frustrating. And so just kind of got a passion, I guess, for helping church production teams get better. Sure. So that's kind of led to where we are these days, which okay. is quite a journey. Now, just uh, to back up a little bit, your first kind of run at doing front of house audio was with North Point, and yeah. did it take you a while to adjust to the fact that we can't just rewind this and re-record it, uh, that it was all happening in the moment? Yeah, so it was, I, I, I look back and I think, you know, it's it's just funny how our experiences prepare us for what's next. And, you know, one of the things that I loved about the studio was the luxury of time. Like you're saying, right, to be able right. to rewind, to be able to undo, to be able to go back and get another take. Because that really helped me sort of explore kind of how the gear works. Like if you're going to apply an EQ to something, you're going to you're going to apply a compressor. You know, you had the time to really mess with the settings and figure out, okay, what is this actually doing? Like right, when right. I boost a certain frequency or I compress something a certain way, you know, how does that actually sound? And so that really kind of helped me in my early learning to go, okay, I, I have a good handle on kind of the sound that's in my head and what I'm trying to go for and how to get there. And then what North Point did, and especially with working in the sort of fast-paced environment of the kids' ministry, you know, there were tons of cues and tons of changes and things that had to happen really quickly on the fly and, you know, different singers and different songs and people running up with whatever mic. And so having to dial in things quickly, it was it was a really great exercise for me because it was like combat audio. You know, it was like, <laughs> you know, just figure it out quickly, turn it till it sounds good and call it good. And then it was on to the next thing. So, sure, you know, that, that was a really good kind of way to transition from studio to live. Um, I felt like I had a great foundation, but then the sort of the urgency and the excitement and the pressure of, those those live events where you don't have an undo and you don't have a second take, you know that was hugely instrumental in sort of my development as a professional because I feel like you know one thing that I really held to a high standard for myself was I do not want to miss a cue. Like I, if if somebody walks on stage and their mic's not on or there's feedback or it doesn't sound good, I don't ever want anybody looking back at me going, "What are you doing?" Right. right. I wanted right. to always be as prepared as I could be and anticipate and be leaning forward and aware of what was going on around me. So that helped not only from a technical standpoint, but then also to kind of view things as a producer, you know, with that mindset of being aware of what's going on everywhere on stage. So right. not only with how things sounded, but you know, how does this how does this transition from music into speaking feel? And how does what are they doing on the screens that make this environment feel the way it does? And so I, I really feel like that kind of was a huge education to me of, you know, in the same way that I would as a, as a studio guy, um, approach things from a producer's mindset rather than just a technical engineering, you know, how does it sound mindset. Do you feel like that was something that somebody taught you or showed you or was it just something that because you had been in the studio thinking that way? Man, that that's a good question. Obvious. Yeah, I've thought about that a lot. One of the things that I also feel is that I was a musician first. And so uh-huh. I grew up playing music and singing music and 
went to school for music, actually. I was a, I was a trumpet major at the University of Michigan, of all things. Um, go blue. Go blue. No, but beca- <laughs> because of my musical background, I feel like that really helped in terms of understanding what, what the people on stage were feeling and, and hearing and needed to hear. And I, there's some of that that I think is just nuance and art that right, right. can't really be taught. I mean, I think, I think you can sort of teach people how to have a feel for the flow or the arc of a, of a storyline or kind of the emotional journey that we're trying to take people on. And I think you can get better at that. But I don't know, some of it may just be in, intuition and right. you know, just, just a feeling. I, I'd like to think, though, that part of the reason why it works when it feels so good is that it is intangible, that it, it isn't just programmatic, that, right, you, right. that you can actually, you know, you, you need people leading who understand the, the kind of art of it and not just the science. But I, I always try to encourage people, you know, even from some of the training that I do with with people help, helping people get better at mixing, um, to really try to approach things as a musician as well as a technician, you know, right. to the best of your ability. Some people have it better than others because they either play an instrument or they kind of grew up singing or whatever the experience is. But to approach things from a musical, not just a technical mindset, I right. think, think that's really helpful. I think it's interesting because my um, my youngest son, he's a keyboard player, yeah. and he plays quite often at church, uh, different places, and I usually make it a point as the dad, the stage dad, to go to front of house, and I jokingly usually say, more keyboard, please, before <laughs> it even starts, because I know that it's just going to get lost in the in the mix, and... Yeah, I've just noticed as I've been different places watching people mix with their head down mm-hmm. and looking at the faders and you know there's stuff happening that they're totally missing but because they're focused on the mix and not how is the mix representing what's happening on stage. Yeah. And I just keep thinking somebody needs to tell this guy to mix looking up. Totally. Yeah. I think you have to be aware and I you know it's funny that you say that about keys. I know that it's you know, you're biased because it's your son, but yeah, right. I think, you know, maybe not so much now because of the way the keyboard approach has changed with things like Bethel and, you know, Jesus culture doing these huge pads and all this stuff. But there right. was a time in modern worship music where there may as well not have even been a keyboard player on stage. Totally. And yeah. it was so frustrating for me because I grew up playing piano and I was, you know, I just, my feeling is if somebody's on stage and they're giving their best and, and, going for it, that if they can't be heard, then there's something really wrong with that. So one of the best compliments I ever got was somebody said, you know, I feel like when I'm listening to your mix, if I want to hear more guitar, I just look at the guitar player. If I want to hear more keys, I just look at the keyboard player. And that that to me was a great picture of what I'm going for. Like I I want to be able to look around and go, okay, can I really hear what the piano player is playing? And if not, then I need to figure out a way to make room for it, you know, to either take something out of the EQ of the guitar or move some panning around or do whatever I need to do to kind of make this thing that, that's, that they're bringing to the table as valuable as it can be. Right, right. Yeah, so beautiful. I'm really glad I don't mix anymore because when I was uh, mixing every week, I just felt like there was a lot less, there was no iMag, there were, it just seemed way simpler the seat seemed less hot when I was in it. So yeah, ha- happy other people are sitting in it now. 
so you said you're you were with Chris Tomlin until 2016. Yeah. So what uh, did he just decide he'd had enough of you, or um, <laughs> he decided to um, not tour anymore, and yeah, so, so by he, default, or was there something going on for you? Yeah. So he made it clear to me that the job could be mine as long as I wanted it, which okay. was great. I mean, he he and I still have a great relationship, and I love him and his family and all the band guys. We're we're still great friends. I think um, what changed for me was I just there's a couple things. One, it's tiring being on the road. <laughs> yes. And yeah. touring is a young man's game. And so as I was getting <laughs> older, you know, there were things at home that I just didn't want to miss anymore. And my daughter, who's now 12, was, you know, turning 10 at the time. And I, I just felt like family needed, needed me to be, to be here more. Yeah. So that was one reason. But the other reason is I felt like I was really burdened by some of the things that I saw as we traveled around and the way the way church teams were being developed in terms of um, not just technical training, but discipleship. And so, you know, over and over again, I would, I, we would go into churches and I would see, you know, this group of people with their head down, following a cue sheet, try not to miss what's next. But as we raised the bar for quality and production in church, I felt like church production teams were some of the most spiritually vulnerable people in the room because in our effort not to miss a cue, we run the risk of missing what God has for us in those moments. And so I was trying to figure out how could I be strategic about partnering with churches to provide resources for those teams from somebody who understands sitting in that seat, you know, how to get better not only at what we do, but get better at who we are in the process. And so that's not a knock against you know, churches who were trying their best and are doing really well. I just think I saw over and over again this tendency of people really struggling with this tension of, okay, how do we provide a great quality experience for our attendees, but at the same time, take good care of our people who are serving, especially if it's all volunteers. Right, right. Because, um, you know, they, they may show up, you know, three out of four Sundays a month and they're sitting there trying to, hold on for dear life, figuring out this new gear and how to, how to be a part of this team that's pushing knobs and, you know, twisting knobs and pushing faders and all that. And, you know, how do we, beyond just a midweek small group with your spouse, you know, how do you kind of in the context of production cast vision for how your identity is not in what you do, but it's in who God says you are. And, you know, the real why behind what we're doing and right, right. Helping, helping people sort of put words around how to cast vision for your team and how to, how to build each other up relationally and spiritually as well as technically. So that led to my developing a resource called Sonnet House, which was kind of designed to, to do that, to address the hands and the heart behind what we do. Right. Which I want to say, uh, just to interrupt for a quick second, that. The time that, uh, you know, when I was thinking about the first time we met, the first time we really sat down and had a conversation was at a taco place in Chicago, and it must have been 50 degrees out. It was a balmy, uh, but the, balmy but the, 50 yeah, degrees. But the sun was out, yes, and so we was... sat outside and ate tacos, <laughs> and we talked about, I mean, you were just kind of, you were into the process of formulating Sonnet House, but... And I was kind of in the middle of trying to figure out Philo and all that stuff. Yep. And it was uh, that was spring of 2015 or something 2015, like that. 2015, so, yep. Yeah. Yep. And so 
Around that same time, I'm sure a lot of the people who are listening to this are familiar with Andrew Stone from Church on the Move and Lee Fields from Bayside Church. The three of us, it was actually that summer of 2015, we were asked to appear on a panel together at Infocom. Okay. And it was basically, we were just interviewed about our approaches to mixing. And I had known Lee a, a little bit and had just gotten to know Andrew. So the three of us kind of were on this, were thrown together on this panel and it was, it was fine, you know, but the questions were like, <laughs> hey, what's the first thing you do when you walk up to a console? And it's like, well, it's hard to know when there's not a console here and there's not a band right. on stage. So it was all theoretical <laughs> and it was kind of weird. So uh, the three of us went to dinner that night and we thought, you know, we don't really have an opportunity to learn from each other. Like, or, or anybody who's in a sort of high level for lack of a better word, sort of A-level engineer, you know, there's not a lot of opportunity to sit down and really listen to what each other does because we're right. either on tour or we're at church or doing other things, events. So we thought, well, what if we leveraged our relationships with gear manufacturers and got consoles in a room and just listened to each other mix and just play back tracks and kind of critique each other? And then Lee, brilliant that he is, said, hey, I bet... <laughs> I bet other people would want to eavesdrop on that conversation. So around the same time, when you and I met and when Sonnet House was forming, Lee and Andrew and I were dreaming up this idea of what's become MXU. And so we, we hosted our first live event in January of 2016. So it's funny how all these sort of paths were traveling down parallel roads because we all, you know, the reason we did it was to really help each other learn uh, but to also right. help other front of house engineers maybe learn from some of our best practices and some of our tips and, and all that. And so, but we've, we've always had this idea that, you know, the heart behind what we're doing is just as important as kind of the technical skill. So all that has now kind of come together in, in an umbrella that offers, you know, our live events and coaching groups and a podcast and blog and other things that have just, it's really been neat for me to see how some of the things that you and I were talking about, you know, over three years ago now yeah. have really kind of come together to, to actually become a thing that people seem to be excited about. So, um, isn't that amazing that I, I don't know about for you, but for me as a tech person, I'm used to taking someone else's idea and turning it into a thing. Right. Our job is to implement. Yeah. Right. Yeah. But to have an idea myself and to have it turn into something, yeah, that's like, what's going on? Yeah, that's kind of weird. <laughs> you know, I'm reminded, uh, there's that verse in Proverbs that says, you know, we make our plans, but God directs our steps. And I feel like, you know, that is so, that is so true. Like when I look back, I can just see God kind of picking me up and moving me right where I needed to be to experience what he had for me. Cause you know, if I look back and think, well, if I had really said absolute no to Chris, when he yeah. said, Hey, come out on the road with me because of the way production has changed over those years, you know, you look at the last 10 years, you know, Jeez, my, yeah. my first editing in the studio was with a piece of two inch tape and a razor blade. I mean, that was, <laughs> that was cut and paste. So it right. went from that to digital recording, to pro tools, to now, very few people need a commercial recording studio anymore because everybody's working from their house or basement or bedroom studio. So 
if I had said no to Chris, I would have missed that whole transition for me from studio to live, which enabled me to continue a career in music and to, you know, experience all that I did and get better at what I do and now develop these new resources. So who knows if I hadn't said yes to what Chris asked me, which was really what God was asking me, I might be in a completely different career, not even in music right now, which would be horrible. So hard to imagine. Yeah. I'm just so grateful. I often think about the story of Joseph in the Old Testament. If God had shown up to him when he was still wearing the multicolored coat and said, hey, buddy, someday you're going to run the country of Egypt. <laughs> I'm sure he would have like take the coat off and run. Yeah. Uh, but that it took all those little steps uh, for it just to be the natural next step for him. Absolutely. Um, yeah. That's cool. Uh, and I guess uh, just thinking about my own journey uh, as it pertains to something you said, so I visited way less churches than you've been to just because of the touring. But I know for me, when I would bump into somebody else doing production in the local church, they were a lot like me, which is head down, you know, burnout. Uh, if I don't do this, nobody else will. And that, I have to say there was some of that that was encouraging to me because I'm like, okay, I'm not, this isn't like just me. Mm-hmm. This is a thing. But I guess uh, just thinking about all the, I mean, church after church of walking in and seeing this, yeah, I don't even know if I have a question. I just, uh, I, I can imagine the cumulative effect of that, uh, of just like, what is the state of the church? Yeah. And we're all, we're all moving to more technology, so it's not like the tech teams are just going to go away, but here they're living such unhealthy existence. Yeah, and I think, you know, I don't want to blame it all on senior leadership because I think, you know, the blame... The blame rests with a lot of a lot of yeah, people. There's personal responsibility. Yeah, too, yeah, yeah, totally. But but there is some there is some aspect of it where you know I don't know in in our effort to sort of raise the bar for the quality of the show, so to speak. I think there were I don't know people or places or whatever circumstances that were willing to compromise some of the sort of shepherding and discipling that some of those guys needed because the goal was the product that we were going to produce and the way it looked and sounded on stage. And, right. you know, to the detriment, I think now people looking back, I think it, a lot of it was to the detriment of, you know, people's health and, you know, to some extent relationships and attitudes. And, you know, I the more and more that I saw people with the spiritual gift of sarcasm, I just felt like, you know, there's something, <laughs> something wrong that this has become such a trend in, in church production world. And so, you know, I'm, I don't want to make sort of blanket generalizations, but some of the blame rests, I think, on our desire to just make it sort of shiny and loud and fun and, you know, like... Uh, not that everybody has their service goal to be like a concert, but I think we were willing to make compromises uh, to get the right, quote, right people in place when they may not have been the right people. Right. Um, and that, that might be too critical, but... Yeah, I think there's part of it, too, when I look at... When I started in church production as a staff person, it was 1992, And I could not, I mean, maybe you could count on one hand or two hands in Michigan, the state of Michigan where I was, uh, full-time tech people at churches. 
And now it's there. It's like every church has a tech person on staff, or, or it's what it feels like. It just it, it's a thing now. Yeah. And I think part of it is that it's it's an unknown arena. And so for churches, we're not even sure who we're looking for right? or what their skill set needs to be or what they need from the leadership. Or all we know is we go to this church, we see that, we want it. Right. And, and I think we, in, in those 25 years, a lot of those people were hired because they knew about IT or they knew about electronics or they knew about lighting first and foremost. And so right. you have this, you know, a lot of people who became church staff who you know, maybe weren't really interested in the church part so much, but more of the job part. And, you know, and, and there, there are great exceptions, but and I'm not saying that everybody who wanted to, you know, but there was an old joke at one time where, you know, the church could be where road guys go when they want to come off the road. And, you know, because right. they understood production, they understood load in, load out. They understood this mindset of whatever it takes, we're going to get it done. Right. And that's not all bad. Right. I think, right. I think there is virtue in that to some degree, but for it to have become sort of okay to not find ways to disciple some of these guys too, I think that's, that's where the church maybe failed them in some way because, yeah. you know, there was an opportunity, I think, to, for it to be different. But, I think the when I look at my own life and I've uh, I mean been through all kinds of seasons as a tech person in the local church I there was a, a part of me that I didn't want to let anyone down and so if you're asking me to do something crazy on one level I think you already know it's crazy mm-hmm. but you're asking it anyway and I don't want to let you down so I'm going to say yes and stra- when when you do it and you pull it off and it gets executed well then you get to be the guy, right? You get to be the right. hero. And there's something there's something that really is nice about stroking that part of your ego. Totally, and totally. you like being known as the guy who can get anything done. And right. because I think a lot of us in this world have a mindset of uh, perfectionism and we really do want things to be excellent, like whatever it takes. Yeah. That's easy sometimes for people who don't really know what it takes to take advantage of. Sure. Well, and I think, uh, you know, I would say most senior pastors look at tech, uh, the, the world of technology and technical artists and all that as it's like going to the auto mechanic. Mm-hmm. I know that something doesn't sound right, so I'm going to take, take my car to you. You could tell me anything about what's wrong with it, what it takes to fix, and I'm going to, uh, you know, it's a mystery to me wh- how the car works. Yeah. And I think in technology and production, it's the same thing. It's like, well, we, I went to a concert and it worked perfectly. I just, I want that here. And you just don't understand what is really involved. Yeah. And you're not asking, frankly, or, and no one's telling you either. I would say again, for me, I would just, yeah, I would do it because I figured you already knew how much time it was going to take. Right. Um, But then when that person who's pulling that off all the time becomes sort of frustrated and then bitter and then resentful and then cynical and they leave or they get burned out and they start you know, bad-mouthing everybody and passive-aggressive and all this stuff, then their leadership wonders why. Right, right. And then it just becomes a, a vicious cycle. So that's kind of what we're trying to help with is to provide sure. churches a way to kind of have a relief valve for some of that. And not that, you know, particularly the coaching groups, it's it's not that they are sort of support groups or self-help groups, but it is a way for guys to come around a circle with 10 or 12 other people who, 
you know, make them feel like they're not a Lone Ranger. Uh, we can share best practices and tips and tricks and as well as just encourage each other and pray for each other and learn, you know, maybe what the Bible has to say about <laughs> what? how we serve. Yeah, it's the crazy. Bible. <laughs> <laughs> there is kind of a roadmap in there for yeah. how to have a better life. Yeah. Yeah, and I think uh, one of our big taglines for Philo is that we want to help create more effective tech people so their churches are more effective. And yeah. really, when you get down to it, it's like, we all, I want to be a better Christ follower. Yeah. Which then makes me a better person, more effective at what I do. And yeah, I can learn the tips and tricks and the, the mechanics along the way, but really it's about what is Christ doing in my heart um, that really matters the most. And I think for... For a lot of us in production, it's just uh, there's not time to feel or think. Yeah, but especially about much of anything. Yeah, but if you're responsible for any kind of team, especially yeah. volunteers, you know, I there was a guy once who commented, I don't know, a few months ago on one of the Facebook groups about he was frustrated because he said, "Man, my church hired a tech director; they didn't hire a pastor." And I thought, man, that is so wrong-headed. Because sure. if you're responsible for imparting any of this to your volunteers, people who don't, you know, a guy who's a dentist during the week yeah, and he's running a camera for you on the weekends, you need to be able to pour into him as much as you can in terms of, you know, what God thinks about how he's serving and how we're called to a mission that's greater than just pushing these buttons on a camera, but that we're actually helping to lead people in worship, you know, things like that, that, you know, he might not ever hear anywhere else. And, you know, I just think we have an opportunity as technical leaders to to just move the needle on that in a really powerful way. I, I would love to see churches where the production team has a waiting list because it's so exciting and so much fun to serve in production, right. you know, because these people get it and they are so excited about creating these environments for people who are coming to our church that they can't wait to you know, to, to work together to make that happen. Yeah. I always had a dream, uh, when I was in Michigan that, you know, the, the production team would be kind of the bellwether of the health of the church, like that people would look at us and say, man, uh, our church is doing great because just the spirit and the, that the is way so we, good. yeah, we, we never got there, but it was, uh, <laughs> it was aspirational. Yeah. <laughs> Bellwether, not got your bell rung. <laughs> yeah. I mean, we, I think we did a pretty decent job at it, but it was definitely, uh, yeah, something that we, that we were trying to do. Because, yeah. And I think, you know, it's, it seems idealistic, but, you know, I think to have that as a goal is, is a really cool picture of, of how you could look at it. Cause, you know, you know, everybody who's done a big conference or been a part of a big concert, like at the end of it, that feeling of, man, we did that. Like right. that seemed impossible and we pulled it <laughs> off. You know, th that who wouldn't want to be a part of a team like that, right? Right, right. But too many times it's that team being just run into the ground and they, yeah, we pulled it off, but man, it was not worth it. <laughs> right, right. Yeah, and I, I think on some level, I feel like there's a part of this that is each of us being responsible I always felt like if I want the production team to live a healthier existence, what am I going to do about it? Yeah. 
okay, yes, there are things that other people can do about it, and I wish we're different, and I need to have conversations, but what can I do tangibly now? Mm-hmm. Because, I, yeah, at the end of a long run, I want to look at each other and say, man, that was so great. Well, that's not going to happen by itself. Yeah, what part do I play in creating that environment? Yeah. Yeah, I think it's so important for and all some, of us. And some of that is what kind of environment are you creating for them, but then also... How are you leading yourself in terms of self-care and boundaries and those kind of things that can be a model for your volunteers because they're looking to you as the leader to figure out how all this stuff works, not just the gear, but the experience and the workflow and all of it. And, you know, so that's part of what we're doing with, with our coaching groups is hopefully giving the people who are participating kind of handles that are sticky that they can take back to their teams and volunteers and other staff to um to just make it real practical because sure it really it really does you know it has to be in you before it can be in them you know so whether that's whether that's your vision and your belief or if that's just kind of how you model what a christ follower looks like to the people around you i mean it's all it's all connected so um, if somebody were interested in signing up for uh, one of these coaching groups, what's the best way for them to do that? So the way the groups work is you can sign up at our website, um, mxu.rocks coaching. And the way it works is kind of on a semester basis. So we'll do five monthly sessions per sign up. So you can sign up for a whole year, uh, but your group may not start until the next semester kind of rolls around. But we'll do five monthly sessions per semester. So ideally it's January to May and then August to December with June and July off. So we can have a break during the summer. Hey, thanks so much for making time. I was, uh, I just, I always love, I always love Todd time. It's always great (laughs) to talk to you. I should tell that to my kids sometime. <laughs> hey, they, they're missing yeah. out. Yeah, right. They're missing out. That's what I keep saying. Right. <laughs> <laughs> well, I just want to say, you know, from, from me and Lee and Andrew, we just love Philo and we love what you guys are about. And I just love the partnership because it's just, it's so kingdom to me. It's, yeah. you know, maybe different specific paths, but man, all moving toward the same thing and all trying to encourage people with a lot of the same stuff, which, you know, what's worth remembering is worth repeating. So I think we should just keep, keep repeating yeah, totally. it over and over again. Yeah. I love, uh, I mean, I just love uh, similar to when I was a tech person early on in my career, just like to be around other people doing the same thing. Like I love uh, you three guys and other people just being around people that are trying to encourage the church, especially the tribe of technical artists. Yeah. yeah I mean, you've got my support totally. I love it. Yeah. Thanks for making time for us. Absolutely. Todd. Thanks for having me. I really love Jeff's heart for the technical artists in the local church, and talking to him, I mean, it always helps to remind me of what really matters. Jeff talked about trying to figure out how to spend as much time with his family as possible. I just loved how often it came up in our conversations, and I just got to thinking, what would the rest of our lives look like if we made more space for our families? I mean, I guess it goes back to kind of that idea of take advantage of the long days at your disposal and go home and be with your family. Anyway, I just love that. It's always kind of top of mind for him. Anyway, if you liked what you heard about the the MXU coaching groups, they're starting up again in August 2019 here. 
And so you can go to mxu.rocks slash coaching to find out all the information on how to sign up. Jeff is an amazing resource for developing your own leadership or your whole team. Yeah, I just love that guy. So if you're thinking about needing some development time, this is a great way to spend that money. If you like our podcast, please subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, SoundCloud, wherever you're basically getting your podcast from. And we'd also love your review. So if you want to go to iTunes, just every time we get a better review, it helps us kind of spread the word. So please help us spread the word about Philo, the Philo podcast. All right. Don't forget to check out our website for all the info about Philo 2019 Anaheim. And if you're on our website, you can also sign up for Philo 2020 in Chicago also, if you'd like to. Uh, We'd love to have you either or both. You choose. Anyway, you can find us on social media, at Philo Community on Facebook and Instagram, and at Philo Conference on Twitter. And if you got feedback for us, you got ideas for future podcasts, shoot us an email, philopodcast at philo.org. All right, talk to you soon. Bye.